on the property experience, our hosts Zarko Jokic and Anna Porter will take you behind the curtain of the property market Australia-wide. Welcome back to the property experience. Today, we have someone very special with us, someone I've known for a long time, Glenn Newbury from Suburbanite. Uh, he is based out of the Liverpool Parramatta area um, for where he meets and greets clients, but does buy property throughout Australia. Welcome, Glenn. Thanks, Anna. Great to be here. So I know that you have a lot of knowledge and expertise in rooming houses, which are a high yielding investment. And I will get to that because that is what I want to talk about today. But first, I actually want to learn a little bit about your property journey. So where did you start in property? What made you want to become a professional in property? How did that all transpire? Walk us through that journey. Uh, Really long story, but I'll, I'll, I'll make it reasonably brief. Um, yeah, started buying. I, I knew that uh, my superannuation was never going to provide the lifestyle that I wanted in retirement. Um, and, and I was also a really bad saver. I uh, couldn't save money. If I had money in my pocket, I'd spend it. <laughs> so I figured by buying an investment property, uh, I, I'd fix two problems. One, I, I'd help to secure my financial future, but also it forced me to save money. Um, so back in 1998, I... Um, Bought my first investment property with zero knowledge. Had a little bit of knowledge. Knew that I had to be, you know, close to uh, the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, so bought a property, but it was, you know, back in times then, interest rates were probably around 12, 15% back now then. Now you're showing your age. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, obviously, yeah, it was negative, heavily negatively geared. And, and uh, I did struggle with that and uh, knew, didn't have any knowledge around it. So that's when I, I really started to educate myself in property investing and uh, been on that journey ever since. So obviously been investing for 23 years now and built up a sizable portfolio and, and done lots of different things throughout that time from uh, just straight buy and holds to renovations to property developments, bought and sold properties overseas and of course rooming houses. Is renovating as fun as they make it look on the block? <laughs> Yeah, look. <laughs> Do you I, sing I, when you paint at two a.m.? Uh, no, but it, yeah, it does send you a bit crazy, and and I always look forward to doing a reno. But when I finished a reno, I don't want to look at another reno for for a significant time after that. But then you start to get the itch again and go, yeah, I think I need to do another reno. And <laughs> I, I've been very hands on with my renos as well, yep. so a bit of sweat equity, as they call it. Yeah. So um, yeah, done that, done that several times, and been reasonably successful with it. So at what point did you make the shift from, uh, I'm going to say casual, it's not really a casual thing, being a property investor, but from property investment in your own personal life to professional property investment? Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I, I had big visions. I'm, I'm very goal-oriented and, and driven by what I want to achieve. And and I knew that, um, you know, I had to sort of ramp things up. But to do that, I had to have a lot of knowledge on board. So Spent a lot of time and money educating myself in all facets of property investing, which you still and do to this day. Which I still do to this day. In, in fact, I'm flying down to Melbourne tomorrow for a, a all day Saturday seminar slash workshop. Um, so yeah, the the education never stops. Yeah, uh, and I agree and with that. It's, I think people that go into property and think they know everything and and you know do a course and then that's the end of their education. Um, are, are doing themselves and their clients a disservice because the market's forever changing. There's new things. You know, I, I'm a qualified property valuer and I teach a little bit in at the university and I'm involved in the valuation industry very heavily still. 
And every time I go to one of those valuers meetings with 20 other valuers, little old men in their sweater vests, <laughs> we all learn something new. You know, yeah. one week, like last week we were talking about the sale of air rights in, in one of our, our group sessions and the changes in that sector. And then another time we're talking about, you know, your return on investment in the, in when we're looking at doing um, redevelopments with bowling greens. Like it's just a forever changing, evolving yeah. sector. And there's always something new, whether it's from a residential house to major commercial projects. Yeah. Well, there's, there's obviously so many different strategies in property investing, I mean, it, it's a very broad term, property investing, but there's so many different strategies and so many different ways you can make money and lose money mm. in property investing. So the more knowledge that you have on board around all of those things certainly helps you as an investor, but also assists with uh, clients and, and getting the right asset for them. Yeah. So, and some um, of the things we know today, we didn't know 10 years ago, like well, no one was talking about selling air rights 10 years ago. No one was talking yeah. about how they make money off, you know, rooming houses yeah. 10 years ago because the, the planning's Same. all changed. Like yeah. it's a whole new planning piece of planning That's information right. out there that people can use. Like there's always been versions of boarding houses, but now they're handled quite differently to what they once were as an yeah. investment and asset. So if you're not educating yourself on all these changes, you're just not in the game, are you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it, it is forever changing. And as you say, the planning rules are, are forever changing as well as the cities grow. Um, so, yeah, it, it does. It's it's uh, a continual moving thing. Yeah. So. Um, we touched on, uh, you mentioned your first investment. So you, you talked about not being able to save. Do you think that's a common problem for young kids these days? And I hate to sound like an old person, <laughs> these young kids these days. Yeah. But is that still a big challenge for people to save enough money to get into the market? Yeah, look, I think it is. I think, and obviously as property becomes more unaffordable, which obviously it is at the moment, it's, um, and, you know, I think a little bit of bias, you know, I've got, I've got you know, kids that are in their 20s as well and, and, uh, you know, they, they sort of want the everything now kind of yeah. scenario. Yeah. So to buy their forever home, you know, in Sydney, for example, is... is <laughs> very dollars. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's really difficult to achieve. So... Um, and if they do take those steps... And I do... Coming it from their perspective a little bit, and it may not be the reason that they want everything now, but one of the things that I do consider is... Taking that step up in the property market as well absorbs a lot of stamp duty along the way. So you might buy your... $700,000 unit, you're going to pay you probably thirty or $40,000 stamp duty. You'll outgrow it in three or four years when you have kids. Then you'll move up to a, an older house you might renovate, eventually outgrow that. There's another 50000 in stamp duty. You buy yeah. your $2 million house, there's another hundred grand in stamp duty. You can chew through stamp duty at the rate of of knots and, and it's so much money in Sydney compared to yeah. other states where property prices are lower. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one thing I've I personally have noticed that we say it was it was just as hard in our day and interest rates were higher, but I think the proportionate stamp duty probably wasn't – like they haven't really adjusted it for this inflation of property prices. Yeah, it's not like right. it's gone down, scaled down a lot. They're just now taking $100,000 off people instead of $20,000 off right. people. Yeah, big money-making machine for the government. Yeah, <laughs> so there is something to be said for doing this stepping up the property ladder thing. You know, it's a very expensive way for younger generation to do it in terms of those costs on the way through. So perhaps an investment strategy where they can keep these properties longer term to get them into the, the property market and, yeah, only buy one or two homes, not four yeah. or five on the way through, is part of possibly what they should be analysing and considering? Yeah, potentially. And, uh, you know, obviously buying, if you can invest first, and, you know, I speak to a lot of younger people who are tossing up, you know, do we buy a home or, or do we invest? And you know, a lot of the time... Um, you know, if they invest first in something that's cheaper and get some growth, that's going to build up their capital base yep. um, so that they can end up buying a home with a larger deposit and a smaller mortgage. 
which is really going to put them in a much better financial position uh, down the track because they don't have as much of a mortgage, and especially when they decide to start a family and things like that mm. and go down to one income, uh, it's going to be a lot better for them if they've got a lower mortgage and a larger deposit, which they obviously property investing can help them achieve. So, And that becomes um, forced savings as well. Correct. On the way correct, through. It does. Yeah. You yeah. save money when the bank's looking over your shoulder, don't yeah, you? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got to meet that payment. So yeah. it, it is a, a forced saving. That's right. All right, I'm going to jump into negatively geared versus positive because you talked about the first property you own being negatively geared. And I, look, I'll be honest, you know, a lot of the strategies I do with with investors are negatively geared strategies, whether it be because they're chasing a tax deduction, which is not, you know, the the core of the strategy, but there's some, some element of that. Or whether it also be they're just borrowing a lot of money and that absorbs a lot of the, you know, at the end of the day, people say, I don't want it to be negatively geared, but they're borrowing 100% of the value plus cost. That really yeah. absorbs your return really quickly and can flip it from being positive to negative very, very fast. Um, I personally think my philosophy is that negative gearing is sort of the price you pay to get a stronger growth asset in nine times out of 10. You'll get the odd outlying version of that. And I'm not saying positively geared assets don't grow, but they won't typically grow as fast as something's in a capital city, which is where you caption, you you don't go asking for negative gearing. You have to tolerate that to get into these capital city style locations or satellite cities that statistically grow faster than, than some of the other assets that we're going to talk about today. What's your opinion on negative versus positive? Yeah, look, I think a lot of it depends on what the the client or, or the investor um, what their goal is and what they're trying to achieve because if they want to build up a, a large portfolio, uh, they won't be able to do that, you know, having negatively geared properties unless they're on a really high income because they simply won't be able to sustain uh, the negative cash flow of a, of a larger portfolio that's negatively geared. So it's a bit of both. So, you need yeah, a bit of both. Yeah, that's right. You, you've got to have a balance. That's yeah. right. And I always talk about, uh, in fact, I had a chat with someone this morning who, you know, said they'd focused on on – uh, good cash flow properties, but the problem with that is they're not really growing. So yeah. how are they going to build their portfolio? They need the, the growth to provide the equity, which will give them the money for the deposits for future purchases, but they also need to have reasonably good cash flow. Right. So you need to balance the portfolio out. Yeah. Um, and I think I, where I take a little exception to it is when investment advisors or people that are just in the market are, are putting out opinions where they say, we'll get you a strongly positively geared property where you don't have to you know, have any cash into the purchase. It's all borrowed funds and it'll grow exponentially in line with capital city growth in the next three years. And I say, well, I call bullshit on that. Yeah. That's a unicorn. I'd love, I'd love a unicorn, <laughs> but they don't actually exist. Yeah. So f- for you, it's not necessarily saying we're going to get everything in the one property. If we could cram no. everything in the one property, it'd be too easy. It's about looking at the portfolio as a whole. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's having a balance of everything in the portfolio from, you know, good cash flow. And if I, if I look at my own portfolio, I have certain properties in my portfolio that are there purely for cash flow and they are there to balance out the negative cash flow. And, and when you purchase a property, it might be neutral cash flow and then you get some growth in it and you pull equity out to utilise that to go and buy another property. And, and what that does when you pull the equity out, it pushes that property into negative cash flow. Mm. So, you know, by having these properties in your portfolio that are positive cash flow that help to balance it out from a cash flow perspective to keep your serviceability up and enable you to get the loans to continue to build. So it's really important to take a, a larger picture of everything rather than just, you know, focusing one type of asset. I don't think you can build a portfolio. But if you're looking just to buy, you know, one or two properties and you're really chasing the growth because you want that, you know, that, that big nest egg at the end, then, um, yeah, you can probably just buy some some good assets that are negative 
negatively geared or negative cash flow um, as long as you can sustain it yeah. when interest rates increase. Yeah. And there's a, there's different levels of negative cash flow. There's something that might cost you $50 a week before tax or 100 yeah. or 300 and you've got Correct. to look at where on that sliding scale you're going to fit that's right. and what growth you'll get as the offset to that. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, in that example, you know, how many properties can the average person hold that, that are both – that are all negative cash flow by $300 a week. Yeah, that, that would probably tap, tap someone out at one, maybe two yeah. if they're lucky. Yeah. Whereas if you've got a couple of properties that might be 50 bucks a week negative cash flow, you can hold a lot more of those properties, um, you know, from a cash flow perspective – and, you know, advance your portfolio, even though it might be a little bit less growth or not in such a, a blue chip area. Mm. Um, yeah, I think you, for me, it's it's probably a better way to go. And you mentioned as well, when you started investing, interest rates were, what, 12%? So people yeah, are calculating a, at what might be $40 <laughs> or $50 a week negative now at 2%, add 10% to that and suddenly we've got yeah. a totally different story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Even add 4% <coughs> or 2% to that, we've got a totally different story. Yeah. So I think as well, um, the other thing I, I, I sort of heard you saying about, you know, looking at if you have a property and you draw equity out of it, so you take a bigger loan against that property to go yeah. buy something else, suddenly you could go from positive to negative or neutral to negative. Correct. And I think we see a lot of that where people come to us and show us their portfolio or numbers that have been crunched for them and they say, I'm borrowing 80%, so they crunch the numbers of what the cash flow will be on 80% because I've got a 20% deposit. But that 20% all, all too often is actually being pulled off another loan somewhere Correct. and it's still borrowed money so it's and they haven't accounted for that. That's yeah. Right, yeah. So I think it's really critical that people also look at those numbers and if an advisor is giving them to you, you ask them, have you included that 20%? Like, you know, the bank might call it an 80% loan because that's that loan on that property. But if the money's still borrowed from somewhere else, since you pull your cash right. out of your bank or from under your couch cushions, that's right. Th- that's not an accurate assessment, is it? No, that's right. Yeah, you, you definitely have to take any borrowed money, whether it be on that property or, or from another property to to fund it. You have to figure that into your calculations because at the end of the day, it's it all comes at a cost. So. Yeah. And everyone and, calculates it differently. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of investment advisors out there and sometimes use the word advisors a bit loosely. Gurus, <laughs> experts, charlatans, yeah. snake, snake oil salesmen. There's, yeah, yeah. there's all sorts of them That's out, right. all yeah. ranges. Uh, you're not any of those bad ones, by the way. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I'm a consumer in the market, for argument's sake. It's my first time I want to invest. I've come to you and I've talked a bit about strategy. Then I'm going around and shopping around and I'm getting all these different numbers off advisors, you know, these 80% versions, these positive ones, these negative ones. Suddenly I've heard this podcast telling me, well, I need to check if they've included the whole loan amount and I don't really know how to crunch that down and who do I trust. Yeah. If I if I want to double check these numbers, who, who can I go and talk to about it outside of the property investment advisor who, let's be honest, some will be looking after the best interests and some will probably be making the numbers look, you know, they're polishing a turd sometimes. Yeah, so yeah. who do I trust? Yeah. How well, do I trust someone? Um, an accountant or a mortgage broker can run through those numbers with you as well. So they're obviously independent to the person that's, uh, you know, pre- presenting the property. Um, they can look at that and um, tell you, you know, what the numbers are. And, and you always need to be looking, in my opinion, at pre-tax cash flow, not mm. don't a lot of people get the wool pulled over their eyes by uh, people saying, oh yeah, after tax, this is going to be X amount of dollars positive cash flow. But the thing is, prior to you doing your tax return, you need to 
cover the cost of that week Every to week. week to week. That's right. So <laughs> yeah. 51 weeks of the year, it's going to cost you 100 bucks a week. Yeah. Week 52, you do your tax return, you get money back. But for the next 51 weeks, it's 100 bucks a week again. And if you can't afford that, then that's not going to be the right property, irrespective of what it's going to be after tax. So yeah. And my question also would be the person giving that advice, are they an accountant? Because they shouldn't be giving post-tax numbers if they're not an accountant because yeah. they don't know the client's full circumstances right. and tax position. Correct. There's it's always things they can everyone. miss. So yeah. consumers need to be asking that. If you're giving me tax advice, are you qualified to give accounting advice? Because yeah. we so, see often it's wrong. Yeah, or, that's or right. too often. Yeah. I lo- you know, my favourite chart is when I look at these seminar things and there's like that that pie chart. Some of you out there might have seen it where it's got, you know, this percentage is paid by the tenant, this percentage is paid by the, the government or the ATO, and this tiny little slither is paid by you. But that's after some really fancy numbering and you've still got to manage yeah. probably a much bigger proportion of that on the way through, right? Yeah, that's right. So... Yeah, definitely, you know, sit down with uh, with your accountant or your mortgage broker and just run through the numbers and make sure they're, they're accurate rather than taking the word of the advisor or whoever's giving you the numbers. Yeah. Uh, including yourself, sure. including us, including yeah, yeah. like it's Absolutely. good to have checks and balances yeah. on, on everyone, yeah? Yep, yep. I would yeah. always sort of recommend that. Yeah, um, right. But, uh, yeah, definitely check the numbers out. So we know how to achieve negatively geared properties it's it's a mechanism of, of potentially being in a blue chip capital city location the rents are a bit lower growth comes through quickly and rents can't keep pace right yep but let's say we've got one or two of those in our portfolio we are starting to feel the pinch financially or we want to start out with something that's positive more positively cash flow driven because you know i don't have the spare money every week for argument's sake um and I come to you, what's the sort of stuff you're going to talk to me about? What sort of properties? I know we're going to go into bo- um, to rooming houses. Or I call them boarding houses because yeah. I'm a bit old boarding school. Boarding houses, rooming houses, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's the terminology I, I got used to over the years because that's what we called them. Yeah. Um, but l- walk me through some of the options and, and why you like rooming houses as an option. Yeah, look, and, and before I even start on this subject, I'm going to preface it by saying um, I don't think rooming houses are for everybody. Yep. Uh, they're not. They're, I'm glad you said that because yeah, that's a very honest yeah, pos- position uh, on it. It is. Because um, I can't think of anything worse. I'd rather stab <laughs> myself in the eye with a fork. I'm not going to yeah, lie. It's, yeah. it's not for me. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely not for everybody. And I certainly wouldn't be recommending it to someone who's buying their first investment property. Um, I think you need to cut your teeth on something a lot a lot more uh, straightforward than a rooming house. Um, it certainly comes with its its own issues and everything. But the cash flow on them can be can be extraordinary, you know, if I, again, if I talk about the one in my portfolio, um, you know, people talk about yields and let me also say you never buy a property based on yield. Uh, yield is an indicator that there might be good cash flow. You always buy a property based on cash flow uh, and pre-tax cash flow, never based on yield. But yeah, if we talk about the yield on- Why is on, that? Talk me through that a bit more. Why so not you, yield versus cash flow? Okay. For, the, for the slow kids in the back of the room listening yep. to this, yep. I'm usually one of them. <laughs> What does that mean? What's the difference? Yeah, so yield obviously is is a um, it only gives you an indication of the income. It doesn't represent expenses whatsoever. So you so can we're have talking gross yield. Yeah, here that's now. right. We're talking about gross right. yield in residential market. Um, you know, when you would look at real estate ads, it'll say, yeah, you know, it's a six percent yield or something like that. Skimming the surface, it's yep. I'm going to have a five hundred thousand dollar property and I'm going to make a thousand dollars a week return, and that's a blah yield. Sorry, I didn't do math in my head. Um, yep. But you know, that that's just the the top layer of information you really only assess. That's there. right. Yeah, and, and all it is is an indicator that there might be some good cash flow there, but you need to also take into consideration the expenses of the property, which yield doesn't take into consideration at all. It's just really a number that, that represents the income on the property. 
um, but not the expenses. So again, if you're working with an advisor that's talking you through this and they're only talking gross yields and not giving you that next layer of information. So we see like Facebook ads, yeah. you know, 12% yield, 14% yield, 18% yield. The question needs to be, is that gross or net? So it's difference between with or without expenses yeah. accounted for yeah. and then compare net to net, which is yeah. after expenses. Yeah, that's right. So typically when you're talking residential, commercial and residential are different, typically in commercial when they talk about a yield, it's always a, a net yield, typically, not always, but typically. But in residential- And if your commercial advisor isn't talking net yield, you need a new advisor. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, but in residential, it's typically always a gross yield that they're talking about. Well, that's about. because the market is a little less sophisticated in my experience. And with all due respect to people buying residential property out there, the market doesn't always look for the answers on net yield. They, they're happy to yeah. talk in gross. That's right. And when you're getting into these more sophisticated asset types like rooming houses, it's really important yeah. to get that next layer of sophistication yeah, the around flow. the information. Yeah. So again, if I sort of refer back to the one that's in my portfolio, you know, if I just talk about yield and I tell you that it's yielding over 18%, people would just freak out and go, wow, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. But what they don't understand is the, the high operational cost behind that. Okay. Um, you know, and, and that's where, you know, you never ever buy a property just based purely on yield. So talk to me, in your portfolio, you went down the path of looking at a rooming house. Yep. Where did it start? What did you have to do to get it? What does it look like in terms of how it's set up? Who lives there? Yep. Walk me through that process. Yeah, okay. So obviously I was looking for a, a, a property in my portfolio that's um, got good cash flow to, to boost the cash flow within the portfolio. Um, and uh, so rooming houses was something that I'd – sort of looked at and decided that that was probably a good way to go um, for that, despite the fact that I have other properties in my portfolio that, that are good yielding as well, but I also have some that are the negative cash flow because I pulled equity out of them or, or whatever scenario. Um, so yeah, rooming houses was something that I, I decided to to have a go at and, and put in my portfolio and learned a lot of things along the way before I actually jumped into the space and did a lot of education around it. And uh, yeah, obviously the, the problem with rooming houses is the rules are different in every state. So it's not a, a national thing. Um, it, it's a state by state and can even be a um, council by council regulation. Mm -hmm. So um, so effectively it's a four bedroom, four bedroom house? The one that I bought? Yeah. Yep, was a four bedroom house. Yep. yep. And then you've got a communal living space. Uh, small communal living space, yeah. Yep. Communal yep, right. kitchen. Yep, communal kitchen, communal, communal dining. Donut bathroom as yep. well. Yeah, so yeah, communal bathroom, but also one of the rooms has an ensuite, so they yep. they have their own bathroom, ensuite, yep. obviously. And then there's um, how many tenants are living there? So it was a four-bedroom house, which we converted to a five-bedroom house. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, in that sort of environment, most people don't need a lounge room as such, Um so the lounge room or the living area in that property was converted to an extra room. Mm -hmm. um, and then basically what you're left with is a, is a dining, uh, you know, reasonable size dining area, which we have, you know, a, a lounge in there as well. So if people do want to sit in, in that area, um, obviously communal um, kitchen and uh, a communal bathroom as well. But even the layout is very important. You don't want to have a bathroom where the toilet is in the bathroom mm. because that means if someone's having a shower or whatever, 
bang, no one can use the toilet. So yeah. you, when you're looking for these types of properties to convert, you've got to make sure that the toilet is separate from the main bathroom. Mm. Um, and to be clear, you've got to go through a planning <coughs> process for this as well. Like it's not yeah. – you can't, I mean, you, people, it's illegal. It's not legal for people to go get a four-bedroom house and have four different tenants living in it and put locks on the rooms and <coughs> create communal spaces because, yeah. and people might say, well, I won't get caught. But the reality is if there's a fire Correct. and someone dies or there's yep. loss of property, that's when someone could get caught out Absolutely. on very serious charges yeah. because you're not meant to have multiple right. occupants unless you have a planning approval because all the fire ratings are done appropriately Correct. and the property structured appropriately and you know you've you've done it all the right way. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So one of the main things which you touched on there was was the uh, fire um, compliance. Um, you know there has to be interconnected smoke alarms in every single room. Uh, you and state by state again, this is where it comes in. Uh, some states you can have locks on the bedroom doors, so each person can have a lock on their door. Mm. Some states you can't. Right. Right. So you can't have locks on the on the bedroom doors. So, um, yeah. So th there's a lot of compliance, and basically, um, it it is just predominantly around, um, you know, the evacuation if if there is an emergency, uh, the fire and smoke. Um, and making sure that everyone can get out because obviously they're, they're not related parties, so they're not necessarily going to be looking out for, oh, the person in the other bedroom, are they in or are they out? Mm. You know, they're worried they'll about push themselves. Push them over and step over the yeah, top yeah, of the <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, it, it's related all around that and then the insurance policies as well. You know, you've got to have that compliance in place to be able to get the correct insurance. And insurance, it's a specialised insurance. It's yeah, so not if you go put five random people in a house together <coughs> and you haven't got approvals, you might get an insurance policy. But if, if something goes wrong and they trash the place oh, and the insurance looks covered. into it, they won't pay for no, that. No, absolutely not. No. Um, yeah, it's a specialised insurance that you need for it. Um, and again, and it comes down to that net cost because that would be a higher cost, correct. I would imagine. Yep, absolutely. So there's definitely a higher cost for the insurance in that. Um, because you've got five separate, um, you, you don't call them tenants because a tenant is a lease where they're not, uh, this is not a lease agreement, it's a rooming agreement. Um, yeah, so it's a little bit different but because um, you can only have one lease on one dwelling um, whereas there's five separate rooming agreements on one dwelling. So it's a little so bit different. Once you've bought the property, the process to go through the planning and do the building works and furnishing it, I believe you'd have yep, to furnish. Yep, fully yep. furnished, yep. Yeah. Uh, Ballpark, what was that cost out of pocket for you? Um, for me, it was around about 30000 So it's very um, achievable. Yeah, yeah. yeah it wasn't, wasn't too bad. Um, basically, and again, it comes down to the configuration of the property that you're buying. So in my scenario, all I had to do was put up one wall yep. um, to basically block off the what was the lounge room and put a door in that wall, obviously, to, to give access. Um, so that configuration worked very, very well, lent itself to that scenario very well. But if you bought a different type of property where it wasn't laid out quite the same, the cost to convert might have been significantly yeah. more. Yeah, um, so it's really important the right asset selection for the specialised Yeah, absolutely. Asset. And look, it took about probably six months, I think, to find the right property. Yeah. Um, you know, just very right location, and I'll talk about all of that too, but um, yeah, to find the right property and, and get it converted and then furnish it, fully furnish it. It was about 30, I think it was, I can't remember, it was 30 to $35,000 all up, yeah. So talk to me about location selection. That's all the compliance. Select. 
Location selection. What, yeah. what, what do you have to look for there? So you need to obviously understand whether there's demand for that product in the area. Um, you know, if you go and set up a, a rooming house and, you know, you've got families living in that area and, and they need cars and there's no transport or shopping centre close by or anything like that, it's probably not going to work. So in reality, um, you know, let's call a spade a spade. Are we talking generally lower socioeconomic areas as a bit um, of a generalisation? Not necessarily, no. Um, that would probably be what most people – and there is a bit of a stigma around it. You know, people go, oh, I don't want to be living next to a rooming house. Um, and, like, I understand why that's p- – Possibly like that. Because some of them back in the day would just become drug houses, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. There's a handful of those still floating around out there. And, yeah. and I think as well back, I mean, I, I valued many of these around the Port Kembla, Cringilla sort of area. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there were some of them that were called boarding houses but used as brothels on a weekend yeah. or used at just a heap of guys straight out of rehab or straight yeah. out of jail would be placed in these sort of properties. Yeah. They'd have a full-time on-site manager but some of them you'd go to and they, they weren't a nice place to be around yeah, necessarily. Yeah. And I think that's what we yeah. see on TV sometimes. We see that on cop shows, people showing up these houses with every local derelict sort of hanging out. And you're saying that it doesn't have to be that. No, no, it doesn't. And you, you know, this is where it comes down. One of the key components to this for, for success, in my opinion, is your property manager, 100%, um, because they're the ones that are going to work on the dynamics of the people that are living there. Uh, and that's really important. You don't fill it full of students. Um, well, not in my scenario anyway. I don't have any students in mind. They're all working professionals. Um, and, uh, yeah, there, there are certain rules and regulations that they will make sure that the the people within the or the tenants um, will adhere to. And, um, yeah, but getting the right mix of people. So you've got older people, younger people. It's not just all people of the same generation. Um, you don't have, you know, all uni students or anything like that. You have, um, you know, working professionals and, uh, yeah, good good blend of different types of people, different backgrounds. And what it creates is, is a community, which is mm-hmm. something I really like about it. So it, as an example in, in my one, so we've got, uh, got a guy in, in, in my one who's, on a dis- disability pension, mm-hmm. um, but to actually talk to him, he's, he's fine. Um, certainly no issues. But what he does is he does a deal with the other tenants mm-hmm. where they pay him a small amount and he cleans everything. Mm-hmm. So I walked into that property and I went, wow. And the property manager said to me, this is not just because you're here. This is what it's like all the time. Yeah, wow. Because... He doesn't work, mm. he gets a pension, but they pay him and he just cleans it. And that place was immaculate. Yeah, it wow. was spotless. So things like that. And then he's gonna do he's done a deal with um one of the ladies there who is a chef in the local pub. She brings him home meals. Oh, so nice. that's their that's their contra that's deal, their, right? Yeah. So it creates community and that's something that I, I really love about it if it's done right, is there are social benefits to this. Mm. Um, it's not just a cash flow, money-making venture, um, for me, it, it is also about the social benefit of it. Yeah. Um, and disability pension, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are on disability pensions that can't work full-time because of whatever, you know, they might have an injury yeah. or there might be, uh, you know, other challenges that they face. But, you know, that can make housing 
really challenging for them. And if they don't yeah. have a lot of family support, this sort of option is where they could find a really good fit yeah, potentially. Absolutely. Yep. And they've got they've got community around them, you know, so it's not like they're on their own, they've got to fend for themselves. You know, there's somebody else there and, and it was really interesting to watch the dynamic between those two tenants when it, when I went and visited the property. Um, you know, they genuinely really got on well and, and it was it was just really good to see. Um and that was something that I just went, wow, you know, you, you, you're actually making a difference to these people's lives as well, you know. So it's not just a money-making venture and, yep, I'm getting great cash flow out of it. it, it it's really providing something that I think is in need uh, in the community. So, Where can it go wrong? Uh, look, it can go wrong in a lot of ways. I think if, again, I come back to the property manager, well, obviously if you're doing it illegally, that, that's just <laughs> fraught with danger. Would absolutely would not recommend that. that. Um, you know, you have to go through some compliance and, and it, it's, you know, we had to convert the, um, the, the property from a 1A to a 1B uh, property, which, you know, it, it's a technical thing, but it's about... Um, you know, the use of the property and, and um, having all the fire ratings and everything in place and having doors that, um, you know, for example, a screen door is not allowed to have a lock on it, right, mm-hmm. because if someone's trying to get out because there's an emergency, they need to be able to get out without trying to lock unlock the door and yep. all that sort of thing. So there's a lot of compliance things from that, that perspective, but they're not difficult to to uh, get through, and and uh, but you've got to make sure you, you do that. Um Having the right location obviously is really important um, because if you know there's not access to transport, a lot of these people and, and you know you've got various people you know that are, that are looking to to move into properties like this. Um, you know they quite often they won't have a car, right? Mm. So needs to be close to transport and shopping centres and things like that. Um, you know if it's not and it's too far away, and in fact in some areas. Um, you can't set one up unless it is within certain distances of those things. So, mm. um, you know, while you might say, oh, yeah, I can put one in this suburb, but you might find there's a regulation as to how far away it can be from all of those things. And if it's outside of that, then might be the same suburb, but you can't set one up there legally. Mm. Um, so, yeah, but, yeah, certainly the challenges, um, probably one of the main things is for me is uh, that, you know, quite often the tenants are short-term sometimes. Yep. Um, I mean, fortunate in ours where those, those two people I were talking about before, they're on a 12-month agreement, so they're quite happy to stay there. They love it there. Yep. You know, they, they don't want to move from there. Um, but sometimes you can get people that are coming in. They might be there for, you know, they might be working out of town or something, so they just need somewhere to stay short-term while ever they're on that project. Three, six um, months sort of thing. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, so the minimum lease agreement is three months. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you might. Pre- but you offset risk because you don't lose your whole rent. If you lose one tenant, you don't lose all that's of your right. income. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and in my scenario, I think we need sort of two point two rooms to be filled to break even on it. Yeah. Um, the other things are obviously, again, coming back to the property management side, making sure there are house rules in place and that they are adhered to. So again, that's the property manager yep. that's making sure of that tenant selection and making sure that they're personalities are all going to work together. Yeah. You know, you're managing people here. So so this is not an average property manager no, that's doing this. This is no, a specialist absolutely, property manager. Absolutely. Um, and that's why I said, you know, this is not for everybody. You know, you've got to have the right team around you uh, in place to do it. And um, the other things, you know, obviously you're providing 
all of the costs. So you're providing your power, your gas, um, your internet. So you've got to make sure, and you can't control the utility usage, right? You can't control how much water they use. You can't control how much power they use. So it can go wrong, you know, if you've got people in in there that are just running the aircon 24-7, yeah. things like that. So you need to just, you know, and again, the property managers are, are there to control that. And you can get things in place that will control or help to control that as well. So um, it, it can, you know, not work out well. But again, if you've got the right, right location, absolutely right insurances, we've spoken about that. If you don't have the right insurances in place, um, yeah, it can be extremely dangerous and, and you're really leaving yourself vulnerable for that. Um, but yeah, the property manager to me is the key. Yeah, uh, is probably the, the biggest key. And if people are looking at trying to do this and it's new and unfamiliar to them, obviously yep. they're probably going to need some help because it's very specialised and yep. you've got to get all those elements in place. Is this something you can help people do? Is this part of the service you can offer? Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, obviously having done it myself and, and been through it, I know what types of properties will work, what won't work. Um, obviously, the as I said, the rules are different in every state, so it's depending on where, um, you know, where the, they're looking to set it up um, because the rules do vary. Um, and then also working out the cash flow because, again, cost to operate is quite expensive. So your property management uh, costs are anywhere from 15 to 20% uh, mm. of the rental income. Sounds you know. like they earn it though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. I, like, I, I wouldn't do it. Um, you know, I think it's, it's quite a difficult job. Um, but, yeah, you know, they – and, I mean, for example, we supply toilet paper because the last thing you want is one tenant going, we bought the toilet paper. Like, no, we bought it last time and then all of a sudden there's no toilet paper, right? So we supply cleaning products and toilet paper. That, that's part of what we supply as our cost um, to to the property along with the utilities and things. And the property manager goes and gets that for us and puts that in there and, you know, you sort of make sure that, you know, you've got a supply there and, you know, you have a lock cupboard that they can't just sort of go and – you know, especially when we're in COVID and there's this, uh, you know, toilet paper shortage, they're not going handing it out to everybody <laughs> and stashing it and things like that. But yeah. um, Selling it on the black yeah, market. Yeah, that's right, selling it on the black market. But, um, yeah, you know, you've, you've got to uh, control that and having, a, again, a good property manager that does that is uh, awesome. So for the average Joe investor um, that wants to just get one good investment property, you know, mum and dad, couple of kids, the, the yep. more atypical client that you would see. Yeah. Um, what sort of strategy would you su- would suit them? What do you like? So gun to your head, you've got, you know, we can do high growth assets, we can do high yield assets, we can do um, commercial, flip, renovate for profit, you know, subdivide. Yeah. Like there's, there's so, you know, there's so much out there. Yeah. What's your go-to? Yeah, look, I, again, it depends on how no, active. No, you don't give to say it depends. What's your go-to? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know it does. We so, know it does depend. But yeah. what do you like? Which strategy do you like the most if you had to pick one for yeah. one person? Okay. So, yeah, buying a, a property that um, – is in an area that's – so one of my philosophies is always buy a property that is affordable, so house typically over units or apartments, despite the fact that I have both in my portfolio, but a house um, in an area, wherever that area is, but in the affordable price bracket for whatever that area is, right? So And um, for that client as well. Like yeah, for that client. Don't get yourself overstretched no. to try and buy the prestige house no, on no. the beach in a suburb and never right. live there. Yeah, but it, you're always looking at the exit strategy, right? So if everything just turns to crap and you've got to sell it really quickly, 
if you're buying something that's affordable and in reasonably high demand in that location and things go wrong, you're going to be able to offload that property quickly and easily if you if you need to sell it, right? So, so your strategy is don't necessarily follow the investor flock. Don't do what everybody yeah, else is no. doing and buy in the same location everybody else is buying no, in. Like no. if everyone's buying 100 properties on the weekend in Logan, maybe you don't want to buy one of those project homes in Logan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, buy something that's in, uh, and, you know, and I, I'm not a fan of buying new properties. I mm. only like established properties. So, um, and, yeah, if we've heard about Spring Farm over the last couple of days, mm. uh, that's, that's a bit of a nightmare. So, mm. um, those poor people out there, I feel really sorry for them. But, um, yeah, it's, it's one of the dangers. It's one of the risks, dangers, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, buying something that's established, been around, if it's been standing for 30 years, it's going to stand for another 30. I'm not suggesting it has to be 30 years old, but you want to buy something that, that's been there a while. And, it's a fairly um, low-risk kind of approach yeah, to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I sort of like to be a little bit more conservative, especially like the, the type of client you're just talking about. You know, mum and dad, you know, a couple of kids, they're just getting first into investing um, you don't want to be doing anything that, that's high risk or, or anything like that. So something that's just pretty straightforward, it, it's going to be, a, you know, probably just a straight buy and hold, set and forget, nothing set and forget, but as set and forget as it can be. Um, you know, something that's in an area that's got, you know, good demand, you know, it's very affordable in that location. So if for whatever reason they need to sell it, they'll be able to off-sell it, uh, on-sell it, relatively easily they're going to get some good growth because there is demand in that area and um you know provided there's good rental um you know low vacancy rates in that area so something below two percent uh is, is typically good you know there's strong rental demand in those areas then um yeah that's that's probably what i'd be recommending for for that type of, of person yeah Fantastic. Something straightforward. Not a rooming house no. first up definitely not <laughs> <laughs> that's a little um, bit further down the path yeah Look, Glenn, it's been an absolute pleasure having you. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, they can find you in the suburbanite.com.au website, Absolutely. office network, our team, everyone that um, – everything they need to know will we'll be right there for them to get in touch. Absolutely. Excellent. Thanks Happy again. Happy to have a chat. Excellent. No worries. Thanks Talk for soon. having me on. That's another episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you for joining us on another episode of The Property Experience. Stay tuned for more great content.